This recording has been produced by Christchurch Jerusalem. For more information, visit us at cmj-israel.org. The first reading is from the book of Genesis, chapter 12. Now the Lord has said to Abram, Get out of your country, from your family, and from your father's house, to a land that I will show you. I will make you a great nation. I will bless you and make your name great, and you shall be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and I will curse him who curses you. And in you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. So Abram departed as the Lord had spoken to him, and Lot went with him. And Abraham was 75 years old when he departed from Haran. This is the word of the Lord. The second reading is taken from the book of Psalms, 121. I will lift up my eyes to the hills. From whence comes my help? My help comes from the Lord, who made heaven and earth. He will not allow your foot to be moved. He who keeps you will not slumber. Behold, he who keeps Israel shall neither slumber nor sleep. The Lord is your keeper. The Lord is your shade at your right hand. The sun shall not strike you by day, nor the moon by night. The Lord shall preserve you from all evil. He shall preserve your soul. The Lord shall preserve your going out and your coming in from this time forth and even forevermore. This is the word of the Lord. Reading the gospel portion comes from the Apostle John's gospel, the third chapter beginning at the first verse. There was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jewish people. This man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you are our teacher, come of the Lord. For no man can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. Jesus answered and said to him, Most assuredly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus said to him, How can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb to be born? And Jesus answered, Most assuredly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Do not marvel that I say to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear the sound of it, but cannot tell where it comes from and where it goes. So is everyone who is born of the Spirit. Nicodemus answered him and said to him, How can these things be? Jesus answered and said to him, Are you the teacher of Israel and do not know these things? Most assuredly I say to you, We speak what we know and testify what we have seen. And you do not receive our witness. If I have told you earthly things and you do not believe, 
How will you believe if I tell you heavenly things? No one has ascended to heaven, but he who came down from heaven, that is, the Son of Man who is in heaven. And as Moses Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whosoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. And Father, now we ask that you anoint your, your servant Aaron. Give him the gift of your Holy Spirit as he brings your word that your word might flow through him and that we may leave having heard from you by the grace of your spirit and through the love of your son. Amen. Amen. Brothers and sisters, we are in the season of Lent. And uh, it's amazing that every time I say that, people go, that's not in the Bible. You go, well, that's true. Neither is Hanukkah, Holocaust Remembrance Day, St. Patrick's Day, or your birthday. But we all like to celebrate these things anyway, don't we? Because they are important. Lent is important too. It's an ancient tradition which uh, we we inherit where uh, the early church would gather up all their converts. That's a nasty word these days and you can't use it, but back then you could. And they would would, uh, make their converts, potential ones, and their sponsors, people who were bringing them to the Lord. They would make them both fast. Not everybody, just the new new believer and the, the guy bringing them to faith. And they would save up their baptisms for Passover. When you would have uh, the season, the first, first fruits, new life, and, uh, and, then, and they would have their first communion with the risen Lord. And uh, so that, that's where we, we get this sort of older tradition. The early church, remember, of course, is Jewish. And they've been reading their Bibles and they saw, well, you know, we want to look like Jesus. We want to do the things that Yeshua does. Well, he fasted for 40 days and so we will too. So they put it on their calendar and it ended up uh, sticking there. It was, and it's become actually a really good way for us as believers to prepare for Resurrection Sunday as opposed to just walking in the church and going, oh cool, today is Resurrection Sunday, we'll sing a few extra, uh, extra songs and uh, then we'll go have some hot cross buns or something. But you would prepare. You would prepare by prayer. You would prepare by fasting. Both of those things, prayer and fasting, are not commanded in the Bible. Did you know that? There is no command to pray. But people do pray, including Jesus. There is no command to fast. But Jesus does fast. And so by the Second Temple period, they've become a very important part of the spiritual discipline of the Jewish people. And we inherit that tradition too. So prayer, fasting, a little bit of self-denial, which is in today's day and age, that is incredibly countercultural, isn't it? I mean, we live in a culture that says, don't deny yourself. Give yourself everything. And if you can't have it right now, put it on credit card. Let your kids pay for it. 
But here we are, we're going counterculture. Let's denying uh, ourselves. So for those of you who are fasting, may the Lord bless you in your, in your fast uh, as, as we're preparing for a very beautiful day. The gospel, which is summed up in one sentence, Jesus rose from the dead. Because if he didn't rise from the dead, nothing else matters. And if he did rise from the dead, hey, nothing else matters. It's a great day. So last week in our lectionary reading, uh, it was in Genesis uh, 3, David reminded us, if you haven't uh, heard that uh, sermon, it's it's pretty good. It's sitting on the uh, podcast at the website for Christchurch. David reminded us that what Adam and Eve went through, that their temptation, that's still happening today. That, that voice from the enemy has not stopped, still teasing us to, to, to uh, deny our real identity, still tempting us uh, into the fall. But God still redeems today, which is also good news. So in the second Sunday of Lent, you start reading how God begins to take back his world doesn't leave it alone. He's going to start with a a family, Abram, and he's eventually going to continue with a people. And you know those people, don't you? The people of Israel. And he's going to put a mark on a special city, and you know that city. It's Jerusalem. And so we have in our lectionary portion today two characters, Abram and Nicodemus, And uh, they need to be challenged by God and by Jesus to embrace, to submit to the kingdom of heaven. And that call by God still occurs today. So in the end, we'll try and see, summarize what it means for us to take upon ourselves the yoke of the kingdom of heaven. So in Genesis 12, just those short little voices, verses, we get a a call, the call of Abram. And to put it into context, we have absolutely no idea where Abram is. The text doesn't say. Uh, What we find in archaeology is when we go into Chaldea, we discover that uh, they're not uh, as... as, um, unsophisticated as we might think. They actually have uh, flushing toilets and hot water. So Abraham's doing quite well, isn't he? Before he's told to leave and start dwelling uh, in, a, in a tent. How is it that he gets to hear from God? It doesn't say. You don't have this, this, uh, this idea that Abraham is sitting there, uh, God comes along and says, leave your father's house, and Abraham goes, oh my gosh, I'm, I need therapy. I, uh, where did that voice come from? He immediately obeys. And what we discover when we read other, other texts is, and, in, and in Jewish tradition is that the Chaldeans, the race of people that live in Chaldea, they have a special talent. They could talk to the spirit world. We see in Daniel chapter 2 that Nebuchadnezzar has a horrible dream. And he's scared out of, his, out of his pants. So he calls in, and it will actually say, it says he calls in his magicians, 
his, his uh, necromancers, his soothsayers, uh, his sorcerers, and his Chaldeans. Why would he call in his Chaldeans if they're, if they're just a, a race of people? They had a very special gift they could communicate uh, to the spirit world. And it seems that Abraham wasn't the only one who could do that because his father does it already. His father in Genesis 11, there's a bit of a, uh, unclarity as to where that uh, 11 and 12 overlap. Terah, the father of Abraham, takes the family and already moves to Haran. And that's, that's the end of chapter 11. The beginning of chapter 12, we have Abraham being, being called. And so we go, okay, great, Abraham's being called and he immediately obeys. Or does he? Does Abraham immediately obey? What does the text say in Genesis 12? God says, Abraham, get out from your country and from your family and go to a land that I will show you. Doesn't actually tell him the name of the place. Doesn't say, uh, you're going to go to Canaan. I hope you can speak the language. I'll make you a great nation and I'll bless you. I'll bless, I'll make your name great. So does Abraham do that? Does he leave his family? Yeah. He's like, hang on a second. He actually takes Lot with him. That's not what God said. And so there was an understanding that the obedience of Abraham took a little bit to get going. And that's why in in, uh, Acts chapter 7, uh, it'll say, when Stephen is giving his defense against the Sanhedrin, he will say, Brethren and fathers, listen, the God of glory appeared to our father Abraham when he was in Mesopotamia. So back then, in the Second Temple period, they had switched Genesis 11 and Genesis 12 around to make sure that they were, were in the right chronological order. That he appeared to our father Abraham when he was in Mesopotamia before he dwelt in Haran. Okay. Saying, get out from your own country and from your relatives. And so what, what uh, Stephen is doing there is when in this long list in Acts 7, he's going through all the patriarchs of Israel and describes all their faults and says, you're just like them. You think you're being obedient and you're, and you're not. And you, you can be obedient. You can, you can get there. And Abraham did. But he waited until his father died. That is not what God said. Now, that's actually quite comforting to think of, isn't it? He heard the voice of God. Took him a little bit to get going. And God was patient. And God kept all of his promises. Now, at the beginning of the Bible, God does all the blessing. God blesses Adam and Eve. God blesses the kids of Adam and Eve. God blesses Noah. God blesses the kids of Noah. God blesses Abram. And then, this is the first time in the text that God turns around to a human and says, now you will be a blessing. Not only that, you're going to bless the whole world. You're going to bless all these nations. And in so doing, your name will be great. And everyone's going to remember Abraham. And so his obedience is going to have 
consequences. And those consequences are going to be beautiful. Those consequences will be special. Those consequences are going to impact the entire world. So we see that he turns his belief into an action. Took a while, but he got there. Some of us, it took a while, but we'll get there. And that end is going to be beautiful. Now we have a look at the other character. So Nicodemus. Now Nicodemus only appears in the Gospel of John. He appears three times. and This is his first little appearance. His last appearance is where he assists another Pharisee, of his, a friend of his most likely, Joseph of Arimathea, in burying Jesus. And so uh, he starts off by coming at night to, to Jesus. We've heard of this character. We've watched his miracles. We know that he's special because no one can do the things that he is doing if he wasn't sent from God. Now notice, just because you see a miracle doesn't mean it gives you faith. Does it? Nope. Couple of, the, the Sunday just before Lent, we read um, the Transfiguration. And three disciples go up the mountain and they see a miracle. Where's all the other disciples? Presumably at the bottom of the mountain. But they don't get to see the miracle, which is a good lesson for us. Not everybody gets to see a miracle. But even the ones that did see a miracle, they still ran away from Jesus when he was on the cross. When he needed his disciples the most, they still fled. So seeing a miracle might not help. And when you actually get to the book of Acts, we discover that wherever uh, Paul goes around and he does a miracle, cleanses a, a, a lady from her demons, does that actually help him? No, usually he gets beaten up. And it doesn't start a church. Actually, in the text where he does start, he just has a Bible study. No miracle is mentioned. And he starts a church. Isn't that interesting? Not saying miracles are bad. They're great They are fantastic. And I'm sure nearly everybody here could tell me some wonderful things that God has done in your lives, the things that you've seen. And all of that would be wonderful and encouraging and faith-building and inspire people to praise and to worship. But it might not lead people to the Lord. For Nicodemus, it attracted him a little bit, but he was still scared. He didn't immediately fall on his knees and, and, and uh, enter the kingdom of heaven. He comes to Jesus and he says, uh, at night, what is this kingdom of heaven? Where do you get your special authority from? And they have a rabbinic discussion. And we read the text 2,000 years later. We read it. Things like, uh, you need to be born again, uh, Nicodemus. What? Really be born again? That's absolutely impossible. Can't possibly crawl inside your mother and come out again. That's just, what, what are you really saying? In a, in, a, in, a, in a rabbinic discussion, they already know what they're talking about. Where do we get the term being born again? It's actually a Jewish term. And uh, you find it um, in Jewish exegesis, in, a, in Jewish commentaries. Ever, ever heard of a thing called the, the Talmud? Okay, it's a big, large collection. Um, actually, Nicodemus is in the Talmud. 
He's in, he's mentioned, his, his full name is there, Nicodemus Ben-Gurion. He's part of the Ben-Gurion family. And uh, he's mentioned in the Talmud, and he's also mentioned as a miracle worker. So he comes to faith. There are several rabbis are mentioned in the, in the Talmud as coming to faith in Jesus and then being able to do miracles. And it's very interesting that uh, the Jewish people record that. For us, we don't get any of his miracles per se. It looks like, just like Abraham, his obedience took a bit of time. It looks like he started small, but he got there in the end. The term the, uh, the, to be born again is a discussion about baptism in the Jewish world where they were discussing. Uh, someone wanted to join the Jewish movement and they would say, okay, you will need to get, uh, if you're a male, you will need to be circumcised, you'll need to bring an offering into the temple and you will need to have a baptism. This is a special baptism where you will Take all your clothes off, so it'll just be men, men doing it. You'll go down into the water by yourself. No one will touch you. Okay? In, in Jewish baptism, that's how you do it. You, you go down into the water by yourself, and you let all the water, the living water, wash, touch every bit of your body, and take everything away. It has to be flowing. It's got to be moving from one way to another, and, and you don't use that uh, water again. Uh, in the, in, the, in the modern Protestant way of doing baptisms, we usually like to walk into the water with people, yes? We like to hold their nose and sort of put them underwater, and we wait till the bubbles stop. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and, then, and then they have their experience of heaven, and then they come out uh, seeing God. It's like, oh, it's fantastic. But in the Jewish way, you'll do this by yourself. The baptizer will stand to one side. So John the Baptist, at the, Jesus' baptism, would have been standing off to one side, proclaiming, repent, kingdom of heaven's coming, it's all fantastic, and people will be going into the water and, and, and joining the movement. But the rabbis will say that as the man comes up out of the water, his skin is the skin of a newborn, because he has been born again. And he is given a new name, and no one is to, rem- no one is to remind him of who he was before. Because that old man is gone. And now we just have the new man. Now we inherit this as into, into our tradition. So here they're having this discussion about being born again. Nicodemus is asking, is like, to be born again, in, in connection to what? And Jesus says it's in connection to the kingdom of heaven. How do you know when you're born again? It's when God is ruling and reigning. Now, what is the kingdom of heaven? You don't see it in the Hebrew Bible. It doesn't exist as a term. It appears in the Second Temple period. It was, a, it was a term that they created to try and figure out how do we describe the rule and reign of God even when we don't have a country, when I'm living under occupation, doesn't matter whether it's the Greeks or the Romans or the Assyrians or anybody else, I believe God is a king, but we've got this king over here. Uh, how do I behave? So they created this term, the kingdom of heaven. Wherever God was ruling and reigning, that was the kingdom of heaven. So the kingdom of heaven is right now. Is God ruling and reigning? Yes. Where is he ruling and reigning? Right here. And when we walk out this door, we're taking the kingdom of heaven with us. So we better act like it. 
And then people are going to see, they're going to get attracted, and they're going to say, who are you people? What is it about this, this, this kingdom that seems to, to inspire you so much? Why are your eyes bright? Why, why do you do the things that you do? Say, well, the kingdom of heaven, you, you can join this kingdom. You'll be born again. You'll have a new name. God will give you a new name. He will rule and reign in your heart. There might be some miracles. It'll be fantastic. God might talk to you deliberately. That'll be wonderful. And you'll join the biggest gang in all of human history. There are over two billion of us. And there's more every day. And Jesus says, the gates of hell cannot stop my kingdom. It continually advances. So they start having a little discussion. You don't literally mean giving birth, of course. So what do you really mean, Rabbi? And Jesus responds, surely a good teacher of the law knows about spiritual rebirth. You know this. You know that when you get baptized, you know we use the phrase to be born again. I'm talking about now that is, a, is in terms of the kingdom of heaven. And I'm the king. And the way he describes himself, he says, it's the son of man. And if you heard, if you were Jewish and you've been reading the book of Daniel, you know where the son of man lives. He lives in heaven. That's where we see the son of man is in heaven. That's what Jesus says. He's a powerful character. All the nations of the world worship him. How does this, this come about? Not 100% sure. Well, we know. But in the second temple period, they didn't quite know. So they actually had a, a theory called the two powers of heaven theory. There were two chairs, thrones in heaven. That's what Daniel saw. Daniel says, I, Daniel, looked into heaven and I saw thrones. How many thrones should be in heaven? One. Who's supposed to be sitting on it? God. But Daniel says, no, I saw two. Who's the other one for? Suddenly there's this son of man. Ooh. And he gets to sit with God. So it was a fantastic way for Jesus to describe himself. Brothers and sisters, I am the son of man. Wow. I'm following that guy. His kingdom is going to have no end. And it will begin with spiritual rebirth, baptisms and being born again. And God will rule and reign. So that same call that appears to Abraham is the same call that Nicodemus gets. It's the same call that we are all going to get. For God so loved the world. He wants to redeem this world. The world fell through Adam, yes. But God refused to leave that alone. A special family, a special people, a special city, a special book. He constantly walked into this world. He would never leave it alone because God loves this world. He made it. And when he looked down at the end of every day, he said, you know what? This is good. So it's good. And it's worth redeeming. In fact, eventually heaven and earth meet. Once you get into the end of Revelation, heavenly Jerusalem eventually comes down here. Heaven and earth eventually meet together. Heaven is not our final destination. The meek inherit the earth. Right? And even creation is groaning for its redemption, not its destruction. 
Right? It's not this sort of, in, uh, at the end, God will make a new heaven and a new earth and we'll just get rid of this one. And this was just a giant test case, you know, to work out who was going to get in and get out. No. In Hebrew, lechadesh means to renew. God is going to renew the earth. And even creation is expecting and looking forward to that. Creation says, listen, you like the smell of flowers right now? You wait till you smell flowers when the Messiah is here. You like the taste of fruit now? You like oranges now? You wait till oranges are in the hands of the Messiah. It's going to taste absolutely beautiful. You like the sound of birds now? They will sing just like God sings. And we'll hear it in a special way. It's going to be fantastic. You're looking forward to that. I'm looking forward to that. Jesus is looking forward to that. For God so loved the world. He sets his call upon his people, invites them into the kingdom of heaven. You let me rule and reign your life and we'll start changing this world right now. Because this world, as we all know, is in open rebellion, is it not? To its creator. It gives us a false identity. In fact, people don't even know their identities anymore. Just like Satan's challenge, are you truly the son of God? Are you really a boy? Are you really a girl? Are you really a human? Are you really any different from an animal? And this world certainly does not approve of self-denial. And this world, and you all know it, the secular world has absolutely no way to understand suffering. It can acknowledge it. It can acknowledge that there is suffering in the world, but it can provide no meaning for it. Faith does. Faith provides a meaning for the suffering in this world as God continues to fix and shape and mold and repair his world. Suffering produces perseverance, character, and finally, hope. Brothers and sisters, you and I have hope. We have something that the world out there does not have. Without a God, you are hopeless. Eventually, your eyes will close, and everything you've built is gone. And even if you have kids, great, eventually the sun burns out a slow heat death and the world, the universe goes cold and dark. Oh my gosh, that's depressing. But not for God, because he is light and he loves to get involved in his creation and energize it and make it bright. And so we wait. We extend the kingdom of heaven upon ourselves upon our families, upon those who meet. We tell people that there is a king. It doesn't matter whether you're, you're an American and haven't got a king, or whether you're like me and under the British Empire and we still have a queen, which I think is pretty cool. But there's a higher king who lives and reigns and rules forever, and his Messiah is going to fix the rebellion. He calls us to obey. Blessed is he who hears my words and obeys. Because if a king, well, let's just, in my instance, if the Queen of England, who's also the Queen of Australia, walked into this room and said, Aaron, get me an apple, what would I do? I'll get her an apple. I wouldn't say, well, actually, ma'am, you're closer to the door, you can get it yourself. Oh, and I'll have one too, thanks, that'd be great. 
You get her an apple. Does that make me in or out of the kingdom? No, I'm in the kingdom. That's why she asked me, get me an apple. I'm in the kingdom of heaven. You're in the kingdom of heaven. And our, our Lord commands us, requires us to obey his voice, giving us his spirit to mend and fix this world. And so in Lent, for those of us who, who are Lenting, uh, that's a nice verb, we concentrate on the Ten Commandments. This is God's voice, part of his heart. All of his commands are good. They have to be good. It comes from heaven. We focus on the cross, looking forward to the resurrection and an empty tomb. We focus on prayer, even though it is not commanded in the Bible. We know that it's good for us because even our Messiah did it. Some of us will fast and do the countercultural thing, deny ourselves something, which we always have, but the spiritual discipline of no, not, not today. Looking forward to the resurrection and the enthroning of our King, the Messiah. And just like Abram and Nicodemus, Maybe our start might not be as fast as we might like it to. But brothers and sisters, the end will be glorious. Amen. Thank you for listening. If you've been blessed by this teaching, let us know by leaving a comment on our Facebook page, on SoundCloud, or by leaving a review in Apple Podcasts. You can offer practical support by giving a donation at ChristChurchJerusalem.org. Thank you, and blessings from the City of the King.